This is good old boy Mike from Sips, Suds, and Smokes podcast, and you're listening to Pop Goes Your World. If you haven't already, subscribe on iTunes. And while you're there, please leave us a rating and review. And now it's time for our feature presentation. I'm Chris McBrien, and the pop culture from Generation X is everything to me. And I'm Derek Myers, and I'm here to educate Chris on the great pop culture of today's generation. Episode 190, The Last Starfighter Movie Review. Brian, along with Derek Myers, this is Pop Goes Your World, the pop culture podcast for the generations. Derek, before we get to our movie review this week, what's new in the world of pop culture for you, my friend? Hey, Chris. Uh, well, I've uh, I've only had a little bit of sort of free time to pop culture it up this week, and I have been binge watching the last season of the television show Lucifer. Are you familiar with Lucifer? No, but you mentioned this before. Yeah, so uh, the character Lucifer is from uh, the comic books uh, created by Neil Gaiman, I believe came out of the Sandman series from DC Vertigo. I think they're DC Vertigo. Mm -hmm. Um, In any case, uh, Lucifer was on network television for, I want to say, three or four seasons, and then it got canceled, despite the fact that it sort of had a little bit of a cliffhanger at the end of the last show. And then it got picked up by Netflix, and they've done a couple seasons on Netflix, and this is the last season of the show. They're they're wrapping it all up. They knew well ahead of time that this was going to be it. So they're like tying up all the loose ends. And so the the 10 episodes dropped uh, just over the weekend. So in the little bit of free time that I've been able to find this week, this has taken up my my pop culture time. I have one episode left to go, which I will watch after we record tonight before I go to bed. But uh, it's I mean, I enjoy the show a lot. Uh, in part because it's based on comic books. Not that I really am familiar with the comic book franchises that they come from, um, but just I like the the playfulness of the premise that the devil is a real person who lives in Los Angeles, and he tells people straight up, "I'm the devil." But of course, nobody believes him, and the whole the whole idea that the devil never lies directly, and um, you know, it's it's a sort of a police procedural mixed in with this idea of characters who are actual devils and angels and demons uh and it's uh it's it's good i i mean i really enjoy it the cast is good the the performances are good and like it's full of beautiful people i mean the guy who plays the devil uh is um uh, tom ellis and wow he is easy on the eyes let me tell you and the the female lead laura german who plays chloe deckard she is fabulously beautiful like this show is full of beautiful people there's a there's a lot of reasons to like this show and the eye candy is just one more reason to like this show so that that's really what i've been doing all week is uh is watching lucifer nice how about uh, you what have you been watching well i mentioned last episode that my two sons they're eight and 12 years old they both really gotten into watching happy days i may or may not have had some influence in this regard getting it you know, what do you think no well no yeah yeah, no. <laughs> well, I mean, I know that the old reruns of Happy Days are on TV every night, and I believe that it is a channel you get in your house. So I suppose it's possible the kids could have stumbled upon it, but I'm sure that uh, you you guided them in that yeah. direction. More more likely, I bought the DVD, you know, of, of all the seasons, and we watch it that way. But anyway, so it, it got, got me thinking, Derek, and I thought, 
If they like Happy Days, they'll love WKRP in Cincinnati, right? Like, that's a fair assumption to make. Mm, I wouldn't necessarily make that conclusion, but what happened? I'm sure you showed it to them. What did they think? So my 12-year-old and I stayed up late on Saturday night. And we watched the first episode of WKRP, uh, the one where Andy Travis uh, comes to town and he changes the format and brings Venus on board and all that. And guess what? He loved it. And okay. then after school the other day, I, I come home, he comes home and, I, and I, I can't find him. I'm like, where is he? And I come down, he's in the basement watching the DVD and he's already like six episodes in. Nice. Some parents are proud when their child walks for the first time or goes to their first day of school or graduates or gets married. But me, I beam with pride when my son tells me that he likes WKRP in Cincinnati. So there's that, you know. Oh, another thing that makes me proud too is this. Here's your dad joke of the week. Derek, I got something different for you this week. We're going to do a knock-knock joke. Oh, boy. Okay. (laughs) Do you want me to start it? No, no, I'll I'll get us going. All right. (laughs) Knock, knock. Who's there? Ah. Ah, who? Werewolves of London. Oh, jeez. Jeez. Werewolves of London. Come on. Come on, Derek. The documentary I watched this week was... Did you say documentary? Don't get confused. For 40 days and 40 nights. Even bad sports documentaries are usually pretty good. It's documentary. Well, like I said, it's it's growing on me. I think you would like this. It was really good. I really enjoyed it. So, Derek, a couple of weeks ago, we held our first ever pop culture fantasy draft. And if you want to listen to it, you can go back. It's on episode 188. So we took the year 1984, and we each drafted a team of movies, TV shows, and songs that we felt that best represented that year of 1984. And we sent the lists off to our esteemed panel of judges, and they returned a six-to-one verdict, naming my list as the winner. Yes. And that means I get to keep possession of the trophy, Funko Fonzie, and until our next draft, which is coming up in two weeks. Um, oh, I should also mention, um, we've now expanded the court, so we've added Two new judges. We added Kurt Kalin and uh, Luke Martin, both good friends of the show. Friends of the show. Yeah, yeah. They're part of our family around here. So anyway, um, what we did was when we got done with the draft, we decided that we'd each nominate one film from the year in question. In this case, 1984, obviously. I went with Ghostbusters last week. We talked all about that movie. And then this week it was over to you, Derek. So you decided you wanted us to go back and take a look at the 1984 science fiction movie, The Last Starfighter. So maybe you should kick us off a little bit and maybe just explain why this movie. Uh, Sure. Uh, Really, the simple answer is why this movie? Because I hadn't seen it in a long time and I wanted to watch it again. And it was from 1984. And I figured you'd have some interesting takes on it. Plus, as so many of these movies from the 70s, 80s, and 90s, now that you watch them, you sort of watch them with today's perspective, and sometimes they hold up, sometimes not so much. Sometimes you can really see that the topics and themes have actually aged very well. I didn't have any concept of how The Last Starfighter would hold up. I figured some of the the special effects probably would look a little cheesy by today's standards, but uh, I, I just remembered enjoying this as a little kid. 
Uh, I, I sort of remembered the the general premise of it. Uh, as I mentioned uh, um, in last at the end of last week's episode, uh, there was a book I read recently that sort of leaned on this premise a little bit. So it was sort of top of mind, not right at the top, but close enough that when I was looking at a list of movies from 84, this one sort of jumped out at me. So that was, uh, that's really it. There was no like deep meaning. It wasn't like, Oh, this was my absolute favorite movie or there's some specific thing I want to talk about. I just, I hadn't seen it in a long time and, and I was interested in going back to watching it and I thought, let's give it a shot. Um, so I guess the million dollar question mm-hmm. for me, Chris is, were you able to find a copy of the movie? So, okay. So the thing is, I'm, first of all, just, just to comment on what you said, cause I thought you made a good point. That's one of the beauty things about doing this podcast is we get to go back and watch these movies that we haven't seen, you know, for, you know, 30, 40 years. And this movie was, I, I couldn't find it on the streaming services. I don't know if it's, I looked, I couldn't find it anywhere. So I ended up actually going to a DVD store in the mall. And I, I bought it there. I think it was like seven bucks or something like that. So I actually bought the DVD. So that's what I did. And actually, I watched it with my sons, both my sons on Saturday. Before uh, my my oldest son, I stayed up and watched WKRP. We watched it. Nice. But, but I, I, I like you, I, I hadn't seen the movie since late 80s, maybe early 90s. Um, but a bit about the movie, it was released on July 13th, 1984. It had a budget of $15 million, and it made double that at the domestic U.S. box office. It stars... Lance Guest, Catherine Mary Stewart, Robert Preston, and Dan O'Herlihy. It was directed directed by Nick Castle. So, Nick Castle. So I want to start with this guy because he didn't really do a whole lot else. Uh, he also directed um, The Boy Who Could Fly, and he directed. Oh, I Tap. remember that. Yeah, I remember Tap with um, Gregory Hines. Gregory he Hines. Yep. Dennis the Menace, and he also directed the 1996 flop, Mister Wrong. With Ellen DeGeneres, which oh, I remember that from Blockbuster. Yeah, yeah, it might be up there for one of the worst movies ever made in the history of movies. So Nick Castle isn't exactly a luminary when it comes to the pantheon of directors. So I think that's fair to say. Don't you agree? Yeah, yeah. So one of the in all fairness, Chris, he's got more Hollywood moving directing credits than either you or I do. So this is true. This is true. That's a good point. Uh, But we always like to take a look at the box office. Now, we did talk about this, you know, last week, you know, at length. Um, The 1984 box office was outstanding, you know, led by Ghostbusters and Temple of Doom and Gremlins and Karate Kid, Police Academy. Like, there's so many good movies. And The Last Starfighter actually finished up at the 26th spot that year and even if you go down the list like revenge of the nerds and bachelor party and red dawn and terminator was at 21 so like terminator didn't it wasn't popular all that popular when it came out but um like i say uh, 26 was the last starfighter and it did finish ahead of the cannibal run 2 and teachers and muppets take manhattan and even the woman in red and 16 candles too six candles only came in 37th so the movie was a moderate success i think you can say you know, but one thing about this movie that I think we need to just dive right into when it came out, this was one of the very first movies to use computer generated animated special effects. Yes. And the other thing, too, was back then video games were just really starting to take off, you know, and really taking root in pop culture. You know, in 1984, home video games were kind of starting to become a thing. It was still pretty 
pretty rudimentary. It was like Pong and Atari 2600, not exactly the greatest graphics of all time. But since video game arcades were huge, and I used to spend a lot of time at the arcade when I was a kid, the timing in 1984 was perfect, I think, for a movie about video games. And this just came along at the right time, didn't it? Yeah, I agree. And that that to me was always part of the appeal. I was never, I'm still not really a huge video game guy, but I was certainly around when video games and video arcades were all the rage. And I had friends that spent hours and hours and, and dollars and dollars in the in the video arcade. So, I mean, I'm aware of its social importance at the time because I lived through it. Um, but yeah, this this was just one of those movies where sometimes an interesting idea, right place, right time, just clicks with the right audience. And I don't necessarily think this premise would necessarily work as well today without a lot of um, a lot of massaging. But I think. You know, like you said, it was this it, it was at a time when sci- big sci-fi movies were start like it was not long after the original Star Wars trilogy had ended. And you were getting a lot of um, popular, big popular science fiction movies through the 80s. So it, it, it hit it checked a lot of boxes uh, of what people would expect to see at the at the theater at that time. So, yeah, the thing right, is, right time. the thing is, the special effects were cutting edge back in yeah. 1984. Now, as I mentioned, I watched this movie with both of my sons. So we were sitting there watching the movie and they had some interesting takes on the special effects. So my oldest son, he's like, these special effects are crappy. And, and I, I'm like, I'm like, hey, I mean, this was the first ever CGI. Like without this, there wouldn't be any of this stuff that you watch today. This stuff is groundbreaking. Mm-hmm. The people that did this are pioneers. And my son's like, these special effects are crappy. <laughs> so, I mean, so I guess it really begs the question after, you know, almost 40 years, does the movie hold up? What do you think? Yes, it's, it's sort of a yes and no. I think the, uh, I think the premise holds up, uh, but I don't necessarily think the execution holds up as well, simply because of the, the speed by which technology has changed. Like the movie's, what, 35 years old-ish? Like tech has changed so much in that short period of time that things don't look like that anymore. And I can totally understand your kids have grown up in a world where the internet has always existed, where everybody has always had a mobile phone. So, of course, you look at a movie like this and it's going to look low budget. So, For me, I think the movie, it has a good story and it has a big heart. But that that sort of the idea of a script about this sort of typical boy that wants to move away and get out of the small town and do something with his life. And then he's given the opportunity to go, you know, go out in space and fly a fighter ship and battle the evil rulers of the galaxy. Pretty much a ripoff of Star Wars. <laughs> I mean, let's be honest, right? But I guess, well, I mean, what science fiction movie after 1977 wasn't a ripoff of Star Wars? But this is pretty much a, a total ripoff of Star Wars, right? Uh, yeah, well, I mean, yes, it, it's obviously leaning on the same premise, but you can argue that the Star Wars premise is so generic, it can be applied broadly to so many movies. You can't necessarily say that that's the first one to do it, and therefore it owns that concept, and everybody who comes after it has to say they've borrowed or ripped it off. Now, you throw in the sci-fi elements, and certainly it's hard to deny the connection or the influence, um, but it's like anything else. Star Wars was the most successful movie at the time. Why would you not do what they did? 
you know, do what they did and change it just enough so that people think they're getting something a little different, but that's close enough to what they already know and love. You get bums in seats and you get dollars. Like it's not a, it's not Mm -hmm. a difficult, uh, difficult formula. Yeah. Like I say, I thought, I thought the story was good. I thought, I thought the movie, it just, it, it seemed to be like charming, you know, but all that being said, like the, 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 with the groundbreaking special effects, the script and the plot, this is a B movie. Like, I mean, it's, oh, it's, yeah. it's entertaining and all, but it's, it's not much more than a B movie, is it? No, no. I mean, especially by today's standard, no. But given the amount of money it I think, made, I, I think even think... by 84 standards, like it, when you, when I, I think back to the time, it just comes off as a bit of a B movie. Yeah. Well, I mean, how, wh- how do you define a B movie? Like what, what separates an A movie from a B movie? Is it just dollars? Is it quote caliber of the stars? Yeah, I think it's a lot of things. I think it's the caliber of the stars, which we'll get into in a second. I think it's, you know, just the overall kind of polish of the film, um, which just didn't seem to really be there. It, it seemed like it was kind of like like a bit of a, you know, a passion project for the people that worked on it, which is great. And like I say, there's lots to like about the movie, but overall it just, it feels like a B movie. I don't know. But when we... Yeah. I definitely, I agree with that. It definitely feels like a B movie, but I don't know if you would necessarily, especially at the time, I don't know if you would necessarily lump it into that category. I mean, by today's standards, yeah, I think you have to. Um, So let's talk about the cast a little bit. I always like getting into this. So Lance Guest, we'll start with him. I thought he was perfectly cast in this movie. Like he's innocent and boyish and charming. And the thing is like, as an actor, he hasn't really done a lot. You know, he was in Halloween 2 and he was in Jaws the Revenge. Well, by which, by the way, ranks right up there with Mr. Wrong as <laughs> one of the worst movies ever made in the history of the world. Um, well, and he was in the original Christopher Reeve Superman movie, right? As the young Clark Kent. <laughs> he was not. Oh, so, well, I always thought that was him. No, I always guy? thought that was him, too. You know, I always thought he played that teenage Clark Kent in Superman from 78, but it wasn't him. It was an actor named Jeff East. Okay, now we know. But if you go back and you watch Superman, wow, that guy really looks like Lance Guest. And and unlike you, I always kind of thought it was him, but it it wasn't. Okay. But um, for this movie, the the test audiences really liked the scenes with the beta unit, you know? And and originally, they only shot a little bit of that. But the, the test audiences liked it so much that they went back and they shot more scenes. The only thing was... Land's guest had already wrapped up shooting on the film, or so he thought. So he went and cut his hair really short. And so for a lot of the beta unit scenes, he's wearing a wig. And you can really, really see it in the scene when they're riding in the back of the pickup truck. In the back of the truck. Oh, you could totally tell. Yeah. But uh, like I say, even though he hasn't done a whole lot else, I really liked Land's guest as Alex Rogan. I thought he was absolutely perfect. Yeah, he was he was decent. I mean, I didn't necessarily think that he was the be all and end all, but it was adequate. I, I again, with this kind of a movie, you get what you get. And it's sort of you just wrap it all together. For me, it's like his performance was fine. I didn't have any problems with it. But at the same time, I didn't necessarily think it was spectacular. But definitely the thing with the wig, you're right. When when my wife and I were watching it the other day. She said that we're watching that scene you just talked about. And she's like, man, it looks very much like he's wearing a wig. And I'm mm-hmm. like, well, that seems like a, you're right. It does look like that, but that can't possibly be the case. Then we looked it up after and we're like, you're absolutely yep. right. Yep. Um, so let's talk about Catherine Mary Stewart. I think she's supposed to come off as that kind of girl next door 
you know, and, and she does for the most part. But I think I've always struggled with that tag in movies because I got to say, she doesn't look like any girl next door to me. You know, like she's <laughs> drop dead beautiful <laughs> and she's kind of 80s beautiful. You know what I mean? Like, it's kind of hard for me to quantify that, but I don't know if it's uh, the hair, I, the look. She just, she's just like 80s. Like she's gorgeous, but she's kind of an 80s look. I don't know. Well, I mean, the movie was shot in the 80s, so yes, I'd be course. kind of surprised if she had something other than an 80s look. But no, she's very attractive. I, I Again, I thought she was fine in the, in this film. I didn't I didn't think, like so many other movies in the 80s, the roles for women are usually reserved for the damsel in distress or the love interest. And unfortunately, she sort of fell into both of those tropes. They didn't really give her a lot to work with. But, you know, at least it wasn't one of the shameless ones where it's like, okay, let's have her take her top off for absolutely no reason that's relevant to the plot other than we want to show some boobs. Uh, so, you know, that's one thing the movie does have going for it, that it, it wasn't that shameless. No, it, it isn't. But the, the one thing with her too is like, she has definitely worked consistently over the years, unlike Lance Guest, right? She's worked all the time, but she hasn't really done anything too substantial. You know, I mean, she was in a movie called Night of the Comet. It came out in the same year, 1984. I really liked that movie a lot when I was younger. And when you talked earlier about going back and watching some of these older movies, that's a movie I'd like to go back and watch. I think that might be interesting to go back and see sometime. And the other thing, too, that I always think about her, I remember a friend of mine in university. He was an actor and he worked with her on some movie she was shooting up in Canada. It was like late 80s, early 90s, something like that. And he said that she was one of the nicest people he ever met in the business. I don't know why. That wow. always stuck with me. So It's always know. good I, to hear that. I, I always like her. hearing that about people. Yeah. Yeah, I like her. Um, Robert Preston plays Centauri. Probably best known for his role as the music man. And he was nominated for a Best Supporting Actor Oscar in um, 1983, the year before this, for Victor Victoria. And I always remember him, too, from Blake Edwards' movie S.O.B., I don't know if you ever saw that or even heard of it. Nope, never it's, heard It's of it. all about like the inner workings of Hollywood. And it's kind of like Blake Edwards kind of thumbing his nose at Hollywood. It was, I, I, it, it was not a big hit. It was a bomb. I kind of liked it. But, um, but Robert Preston, he's got such a great voice. And the thing was with this role of Centauri, it's basically the same as Harold Hill from The Music Man. And, and the writers, when they wrote this script, they actually wrote this character with him in mind to play the part. And as a result, he was really good at this. I, I think also for a, you know, quote unquote B movie, like we said, it helped give them a more well-known actor. You know, it maybe gave the movie or at least the cast a bit more of a legitimacy. I don't know. I think I thought he was great. I thought he was one of the better parts of the movie. What do you think? I I never seen him before this. I have never seen any of those movies you talked about. I never even heard of half of them. Um I, I didn't have any issues with his uh, his performance. Again, I don't. It didn't stand out to me when I saw it when I was younger, and when I watch it this time. I'm just like, again, it's fine. Um, it did sort of strike me as odd the choice they made to um, sort of reveal that he's an alien by having him like take his face off in the cab and then turn back to look at Alex, mm -hmm. and he's got like you know the weird alien face, and then he immediately puts his face back on. It's like. Well, why'd you take it off? And later in the movie, same thing. You see him without his mask on and he puts, it's like, I, okay, like, are we just trying to establish that he's in disguise? Like there are better ways to do that. It just seemed like uh, an unnecessary um, 
little thing to add into the movie. Like, I think there were there were better ways to accomplish the same thing. I don't know if it's maybe their makeup people or like we need to have X number of shots with makeup in it or we have to put X number of prosthetic faces on people. But it just it didn't it didn't really add anything for me the way they did it. And I just I just thought it seemed kind of silly and out of place. I think the reason why they did it was for the payoff in the final scene when you think he's dead and then this alien comes up and then puts the, uh, the the handkerchief on his face and it's Centauri because my sons were like, oh my God, daddy, he's back. He's alive. So there was like that reveal. And so that's why I think they did it. That's my thought. All right. Based but, on my but, son's reactions, I'm sure. Like, that's okay. So, going so, so, but at the end when that alien, when, when him with, you know, with his quote unquote natural face on shows mm-hmm. up, well, of course it's him. He's the only one of those we've seen the whole movie. Why would we think it was anybody else? <laughs> exactly. So if again, That's why it's if that a B movie. Reason, <laughs> but if that was the reason, then like you should have seen seven or ten or twelve of them like wandering around in the background. So it's like, oh, it could have been any of them. But whatever. I I, I just thought that was kind of dumb. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> the, the other cast member I want to touch base on is Dan O'Hurley. He was a character actor from the fifties and sixties, and he worked right through the nineties. He died in two thousand and five. Uh, he played Greg, the the alien, like kind of the that brown, you know, scaly faced alien that was like his his sidekick when they went out in the Starfighter. And I thought he did a really good job in that role. I thought he he was that laugh that he had. I don't know. Yeah. There was something very memorable about that about that character. I thought he was really good. Yeah, I mean that's the the risk when you have a character in a mask or in a prosthetic or in a you know something like that is so many actors uh, emote through their facial expressions. And so when you put a rubber mask on their face or silicone or latex or whatever it might be made of, you potentially put them in a spot where you're restricting part of their performance. And I think that the, you know, heads up compliment to the people who did the, um, who did the makeup on this was that although there were certainly times when you could tell it was like a face mask on him, they still gave him enough uh, mobility to emote accurately through the mask where you could really get a sense of what he was doing. And that's, I think that's a compliment to the performer is even though he's covered in all that makeup, he can still convey emotion through facial expressions through just what you can see through, through his voice work through it. Like you said, the laugh. And so for that, I always really, um, really enjoyed and uh, thought was really well done when we watched this again this week. Yeah. Overall, I think the casting was really well done. The thing is for me, you like these people. At least I did. Yes. Watching yeah. like you really like them. And, yeah. and that's important for a film like this, I think. You know, that, that has that human element, but it also has that special effects element that we touch base on. And the thing was, they didn't have a real big budget for elaborate special effects. So the thing was, when they came to make the movie, they couldn't go around building all sorts of models and miniatures and stuff. So they, they had to work with what they had. And, mm-hmm. and what they had was access to defense industry computers because their special effects guy, Ron Cobb, he'd worked on stuff like Star Wars and Alien. And so he had access to that kind of stuff. So they used the computers to create the look of like the lasers shooting and they created animation using polygons to try and give it like a 3D look. And it was basically one of the first incarnations of modern day CGI, right? Even though my son thinks it looks crappy, but I mean, it was... It was groundbreaking. Yeah, it's certainly it's certainly a uh, a reasonable milestone in the evolution of use for computer graphics, computer animation in mainstream Hollywood big budget movies. I mean, it's no Star Wars, but 
it's like anything else. It's it's all built on a foundation, and every every time something new comes out, somebody has to be the first to try it. And I don't know if they were the first, but they were certainly one of the first. And like you said, the movie, um, you know, made a pretty reasonable amount of money, so people obviously enjoyed it enough to come and see it in the theater, possibly to come back and see it again, possibly enough to tell their friends, you should go see this movie. It wasn't the opposite of that where they said, oh man, the, the graphics are so terrible. Like it takes you right out of the movie. So I think you have to admire it for what it did. And, uh, you know, for computer, for movies that use this kind of, uh, computer generation and, um, and still like, although it looked kind of crappy, I still think it held up like it, you you got the sense of what was happening. It yep. didn't remove you from the movie to the point where all you could see were these crappy special effects. Um, and I think part of that was because, in my mind, they didn't overuse them. Like I think that's the risk with any uh, with any art, uh, with any sort of movies or TV is when a new technology comes around. There's always this desire to just show it off more than you need yes. to, and sometimes that can be a problem if it doesn't land very well. Like mm -hmm. I think the Phantom Menace is a good example of this where. There's just some of the tech, some of the computer generation, some of the animation. It, it, you could tell it was sort of getting there, but wasn't quite there. And it's like like the whole Jar Jar character. You watch him in certain scenes, you're just like, oh man, this this really isn't as good as Lucas thinks it is. And then like a year later, you have Gollum in Lord of the Rings, and you're like, there, dude, that's how you do it. So, and that's it. I'm glad you brought up Lucas because in the original Star Wars, one of the cool things that I always thought about the original film was that. It didn't. It, it was all about speed of action through the frame, and it didn't spend a lot of time showing off the special effects. It, the, the Millennium Falcon would go by quickly. You wouldn't even have a chance to really show off all the the work that those guys did on that. And that was one of the cool things about Star Wars. And then, like you said, when they went back and did the prequels, they spent all this time showing it off, and it was crappy. And it was like Lucas forgot. You know what made it so good the special effects so good in the first thing um just to, to pivot off special effects for a second i want to talk a little bit about the script for this movie because sure. I, I think it's quite good and 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 i think the script originally had this film set in the suburbs but the filmmakers felt it would be a little bit too much like et you know and i, I guess they you know they didn't want to seemed like they were ripping off that movie, although they didn't seem to care too much about ripping off Star Wars, apparently, but you know, with the whole small town boy goes to space. But um, a couple of things in the script I liked. So the the scene when, <laughs> I thought it was funny, when Alex and Maggie kiss, I turned to my son, and I was just being funny. I'm like, I go, ooh. And just as I say that, the little brother pops up on the screen and goes, oh, diarrhea. <laughs> and both me and my son just laughed. We had a good laugh on that. And... There was that, remember that scene with the beta unit? You know, going just touching base on special effects again, just for a second. When he's under the sheets, and then it's like yeah. morphing into Alex, and the sheets gets pulled back, and it, you see its face. And that was like, no, obviously not CGI or anything. It scared the living crap out of my two sons. <laughs> it really did. I they said were, the same thing. Yeah. I said the same thing to my wife when it, because again, I honestly, I did not have as strong a memory of this movie as I thought I did, yet my wife seemed to remember all the dialogue. Um, that whole the diarrhea. She mm -hmm. knew that. She she called it before. I'm like, oh man, I didn't remember. It. But yeah, when he pulls back the cover, and I said that, I'm like, geez, that would be pretty traumatic for little kids. Yeah, it definitely was. And the other thing too, like speaking of that, that Terminator thing that sent down to kill Alex. And then when it walks by the video game and its face like melts off, and then it like this weird alien pops out. That scared the crap out of my sons too. Like actually, this movie was a, it was a lot scarier than I remembered it to be as well. 
Mm-hmm. So and then there was yeah. another scene too when when that Zur guy gets taken away by his own guards and then he, he he takes back that scepter thing he had with the blade on it and he yeah. hits the one guard on the head and his helmet comes off and his face is like all gross and scary again my sons jumped so they're like oh man this movie's so creepy <laughs> so well, again they they are pretty much the target audience right like I'm thinking. When I was, I would have been close to their age when this came out, and I can remember really enjoying this as a kid. So, I mean, maybe that's really the the audience they were shooting for was that, you know, young kids, 8 to 15 years old, people who have maybe already seen Star Wars and want something in that same vein. And like we said, if the formula works, repeat the formula and just, you know, change a few things, get some bums in seats. For me, though, overall... Like, uh, when you think about this movie or when you talk to people of this movie, they think of the special effects. But for me, it was the other part. It was the best parts of this movie for me were the scenes back on Earth. Like the beta unit trying to fit in with the humans and the relationships between the, the citizens that were in the trailer park. Um, I like when he's playing the, the video game and the whole trailer park comes to watch yeah. him get the high score. Not a lot of excitement happens in these people's lives, apparently, you know. Oh, that, by the way, I also yeah. recognize the mom. The actress was Barbara Boston. She was on Hill Street Blues. I was going to say, I recognize her from yeah. Hill Street Blues, yeah. yeah. Um, but I, I, I guess I just like the idea of this young man that just wants to escape his life there and just do something more. And I, for me, all of that was like just way better than the space stuff. That was just my opinion in it. But uh, those people in the trailer park, the Otis, remember, he was such an awesome character. And I, and I recognized one of the women in the trailer park. She was in 9 to 5 with Dolly Parton and Lily Tomlin. She she played like the, this alcoholic co-worker in that movie. She was always saying the line, at a girl in 9 to 5. And I recognized her for that. And the other one that I liked in the in the trailer park was Granny. The, the, the scene at the end when the spaceship comes down, and Grig steps out. <laughs> She's got this gun. <laughs> and Alex yeah. Alex says, he's like, Granny, put away that shotgun. What's wrong with you? <laughs> That's not that such a funny line. And the actress that played Granny, um, she did a lot of TV over the years. She was in the pilot episode of the original Star Trek TV show. Remember when it was Captain Pike? And he meets those uh-huh. aliens that were bald and they had the, the big heads with all the veins. She was in that episode. Wow, I uh, I did not know that. Anyway, but um, I, I liked the human element of this movie, the stuff that happened on Earth. To me, that's what grounded this film. That was I thought that was the best part of this film. And I think that as they started to make the movie, they realized that too. And that's why they went back and shot more of those scenes. And I'm glad they did. I'm really glad they did. Because to me, that was the best part of the movie. That's fair. How about you? I, yeah, I mean, I... Um, I, I mean, I really enjoy, I I like an origin story. I mean, that's part of the reason I like superhero movies so much. So I really liked getting to know the characters so that you understood why Alex wanted to leave, but the things that were tying him down and, and limiting those opportunities. And then to see that he was good at this video game, sort of, it implied that he spends a lot of time at the trailer park because he can't really go any farther. And clearly this is one of his only, one of the only things he can do that doesn't rely on other people like all his friends are always going out together and it's like well what what is a single kid at home with nothing else to do what do they do to kill time it's like this is pretty much his only outlet is this video game and the fact that he gets so good at it 
you know, implies that he's obviously played it a lot. Now, I think the also the implication is there's probably some sort of natural talent there as well. But mm-hmm. um, but you get this, you know, you get to know who the character is so that when this opportunity presents itself, you know, as they say, you got to grab it with both hands kind of thing. It's like then he was able to to go for it and you you follow him along on the ride. It's like you said, you get to know these characters, you get to root for these characters, you you get to like these characters. And um, so for me, I, I thought like I really enjoyed like the first 20 to 30 minutes of it when it's all the the sort of the origin, the laying it all out. Mm-hmm. And then the next hour, it's like, OK, well, now we go into the space fighting and, the you know, the chase and the, the guys, the, the assassin aliens that come down to try and kill the beta unit and all that stuff. And it's like, eh, OK, whatever. Interestingly, when you mentioned the arcade video game at the beginning and how he plays it, Atari was going to make an art like an arcade video game of this movie. They even mention it in the closing credits, if you read the closing credits. Yes, yes, we noticed that. But once Atari saw the film imposed, they thought it was going to be a bomb. So they pulled the plug on the video game and they didn't do it. So it never ever came about. But although Marvel did do a a comic adaptation of this movie, you know those Marvel super specials? They used to make those oversized comics. My son has three of them. He's got Star Wars, Close Encounters, and my personal favorite, Battlestar Galactica. And he liked this movie. I wouldn't say that he loved it, but I think it's, you know, fair to say that he, he liked it. But, yeah. um, and, and I, I feel the same way about it, to be honest. So so I guess I probably won't go and hunt down the, the Marvel Super Special at any time. Mm-hmm. It, it was just okay. So overall, like, I, I enjoyed going back and watching this movie because it was something that I did enjoy many, many years ago. I do remember that. But, um, you know, and I had, I had some fond memories of it. So I'm really glad, like I said, going back to the beginning of the podcast, I'm really glad that we get this opportunity to go back and watch some of these movies because, you know, I'm, I'm glad that we did. So nice. What would you uh, what would you give it out of 10 if you had to give it a rating? Oh, I'd probably give it around a six. Yeah, that's that's you know, pretty much my thought, too, is it's it was fun to go back and revisit it. It's not necessarily one that I'm going to recommend people go out of their way to find the fact that it's not easily and readily available on a streaming service. I certainly mm-hmm. wouldn't encourage people to, to run out and buy the DVD or the Blu-ray, but this is one that if, uh, if it does come onto the streamers, you know, I might mm-hmm. watch it again. Right. Um, or if, if you haven't seen it before, or you haven't seen it in a long time and suddenly it shows up as, Hey, now it's available on mm-hmm. Netflix. I would definitely say, yeah, take a look at it. But, um, yeah, it's, it's good, but not great, but I can appreciate what it was right. for its time and it's fun to watch. And like you said, if you got little kids, I think they'll enjoy it if they're into movies like star Wars. So yeah, I think six, a fair number. All right. So there we go. All right. What do you say? We have some fun with caveman. So the last Starfighter certainly wasn't the first, nor will it be the last, uh, movie pun intended, by the way, to have the word last in the title. Oh boy. Okay. Here's what we're going to do. I'm going to give you the year and the synopsis. Derek, all you got to do is name the title of the film. Okay. Just a common thread is that all the movies have the word last in the title. Okay. Got it? All right. That's easy, right? All right. Okay. Sounds easy. Sounds easy. I'm sure Ah. I'm going to embarrass myself. No, these are simple. Okay. 1991. A private detective's protected female witness is murdered, prompting him and the victim's boyfriend to investigate the crime that leads to a corrupt politician and a crooked football team owner. Um, it, okay, based on the fact that it's got to have last and based on the fact that you had football at the end, I think I remember the poster of this movie. Was it The Last Boy Scout? Yes, it was. Congratulations. Yeah. Okay. Never, never saw it. Never saw it. I haven't seen it either, but I thought you know that one. Okay, 1988. Easy one. 
the life of Jesus Christ. His journey through life as he faces the struggles all humans do and his final temptation on the cross. Would that be the last temptation of Christ? Okay, this one's a little newer, more in your wheelhouse, okay? 2003, an American military advisor embraces the samurai culture he was hired to destroy after he's captured in battle. Oh, that was that stupid Tom Cruise one, wasn't it? It was, um, I think it was just called The Last Samurai. All right, 2006, based on the events of the brutal Ugandan dictator Idi Amin's regime, as seen by his personal physician during the 1970s. Yeah, that was, um, he won an Oscar for that, right? It was uh, The Last King of Scotland. All right, 1987, the story of the final emperor of China. Um, I can picture, I can literally picture the cover of the movie box. I remember from the video store and I can't for the life of me think of the title. I don't know. The Last Emperor. Oh, so simple now that you say it. Yeah. Yeah. All right. 1971. In 1951, a group of high schoolers come of age in a bleak, isolated, atrophied North Texas town that is slowly dying, both culturally and economically. Um, is that uh, The Last Picture Show? Sybil Show, yes it is. Oh, very good. I had no idea that's what it was about. Oh, it's so good. Okay, 1992. The magical inhabitants of a rainforest fight to save their home, which is threatened by logging and a polluting force of destruction called Hexus. I think this is a trick question. I think, I think this was called Fern Gully, and then it was the last something, the last. I don't remember. The magical inhabitants of a rainforest. Was it the, the last rainforest? Yes, it was Fern Gully, the last rainforest. Oh, it was okay. Yeah. All right, 2010 follows the adventures of Ang a young successor to a long line of avatars who must ma- uh, master all four elements and stop the fire nation from enslaving the water tribes and the earth kingdom. I think that's um, Avatar the Last Airbender. All right, 1997, four young friends bound by a tragic accident, are reunited when they find themselves being stalked by a hook-wielding maniac in their small seaside town. Oh, that was, uh, I know what you did last summer. Very good. All right, 1998. The murderous fisherman with a hook is stalking two surviving teens, Julie and Ray, who had left him for dead, as well as cause for even more murder and mayhem, this time at a posh island resort. It's funny. I was just thinking, didn't they make a sequel to that? And it was called, I think it was called, I still know what you did last summer. Last one. Nice. And you got them all so far. 1986. No, I think I missed one. 
What's I missed that? the last emperor. I missed the last emperor. Oh, you missed the last emperor. That's right. And I helped you with Fern Gully, but it's yeah, all yeah. good. 1986, a man and woman meet and try to have a romantic affair despite their personal problems and the interference of their disapproving friends. Wow. That, geez. It sounds like Romeo and Juliet, but it's, geez. I don't know. I have no idea. <laughs> I really like this movie a lot. It's called About Last Night. Never Ra- heard of it. Who's Rob Lowe, it? Demi Moore, Jim Belushi. No? No, never heard of it. Oh, man. That's a good one. You'd have to go back. Maybe I'll have to nominate that film sometime for you to watch because it's quite good. I think they remade it a couple years ago with like an all-black cast or something. It was so stupid. But uh, no, it was really good. The original was quite good. Quite a good little movie. All right. So, uh, Derek, next week we're going to be back with a topic we'll have to discuss that figure out what it's going to be you know but uh until then this is chris mcbrien for Derek Myers saying thanks for listening to pop goes your world the pop culture podcast for the generations thanks for listening to pop goes your world you can contact chris and Derek at popgoesyourworld.com Please take a minute and review the podcast on iTunes or wherever you download and listen to the show.